This morning what we're going to be doing is we're going to be in Psalm 46. Psalm 46, if you want to turn there, Psalm 46. Uh, we've been in this series, we've been in this series, Prayers for This Moment. So we've been looking at the book of Psalms, and one of the things we're doing is we're unpacking the Psalms. And you may wonder, like, well, why would we look at the Psalms? Like, what is it about the Psalms that you would even want to spend any time in the Psalms? Well, the Psalms talk about difficult times. And so when you're having difficult times, you want to look at the Psalms. The Psalms tell us that we're not alone in our trouble. So it's very much uh, a book that describes how you're feeling. It describes your life before you experience your life. So Psalms encompass the complete range of the human experience and the wonder of God's response to our experience. So that's why we're looking at Psalms again today. We're looking at Psalm 46, beginning in verse 1 through verse 4, and then 10 and 11. A very famous psalm I'm going to read to you from the NIV translation, beginning in verse 1, says this. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. Moving down to verse 10, he says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we would be in awe of who you are, that we would hunger for you. Father, I pray that you would bless the, the, the word as we open it up. We pray you bless our understanding. May we grow in grace and the knowledge of who you are as you speak to us and build your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things that we want to do whenever we're looking at Scripture is that we want to understand, like, well, what's the background? What's the context? What, how, what brought this to be? And so the historical context of this passage is that God's people were in a time of incredible, tumultuous trouble. Like our nation has been in trouble. Like many of your families, you feel like you've been in trouble. And so in that context, the Assyrian army was going to invade the walled city of Jerusalem. So you can imagine that the armies are coming together, that the people are preparing for battle. There's the clamoring of the armor. There's the nervousness in the camp. The battle talk is at hand. And the enemy is drawing near, and people are grabbing their swords, and people are getting ready for war. And they know that war is imminent. And this is written during a time of war, a time of turmoil, a time of, of great trouble. The, the dreaded and awful nation of Assyria was going to try to conquer God's people. And Shennacherib, who was the king of Assyria, was an expansionist. And he was wanting to expand his kingdom there. And he was on a rampage. He was on a rampage to invade God's people there in Jerusalem, which were in his way. Assyria being the greatest power in the earth, 150,000 soldiers. Their cruelty was legendary. Talk about trouble. Their barbaric savagery was such that they would cut off the noses of their captors. Their ears gorge out their eyes. They would skin them alive. They would cut off the limbs of their captors. And this is who they were. So God's people understood what the Assyrians were all about. And on paper, it looked like they didn't stand a chance. Like it was 
over. As the bloodthirsty army of Assyria now is on its way with the intentions to overtake the walled city of Jerusalem. So there's God's people. And they're looking out and they're surrounded now by the Assyrians. And Judah's leader was Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was an awesome man. He was like a Billy Graham type figure, leading people into obedience and uh, worship of God and uh, worshiping God's temple. So he's praying for a miraculous delivery of God's people from the Assyrians. So again, it looks like God's people are going to be destroyed, like it is over, but God intervenes. And so to commemorate all of that, this Psalm 46 was penned to immortalize what God did with the Assyrian army. If you read in 2 Kings, ultimately what happened, Hezekiah is praying, the angel of the Lord went throughout the Assyrian camp and 185,000 of the Assyrians were killed that night by the angel of the Lord and God's people uh, were escaped the Assyrian attack. So we're beginning in verse 1 and it says this. We're going to talk about three ways or three principles that you have to build into your life when you want to overcome trouble. How you can be triumphant in trouble. How you can deal with trouble. So it says this, number one. It says, God is our refuge and strength. So the number one thing you do when you have trouble is you run to your refuge. Refuge translates a shelter, a fortress, a strong tower. So God then is an accessible and dependable and awesome refuge that you can see here historically in our context also. So it says, God is a refuge and a strength. Now notice this. It says, God is present tense. Not God has been, not God will be, but God is today, 11, 29, 2020. God is your refuge today. In other words, our God is like right here, right now. Like God is an immediate help now, today. Just when you need him, God is here. God in the middle of the night will come to help you, whatever your situation, God is here. And so God is our personal refuge, our personal strength, our personal help in times of trouble. Now, God's help, it says God is, has no expiration date. There's not a time when that will ever end. There's no limited number of refills on God is your refuge and your strength. Question is, sometimes we think that God's promises have an expiration date, but here has no expiration date. So it says that God is an awesome refuge. Deuteronomy 33 says this. It says that the eternal God is your refuge. And watch the word picture here. And underneath are the everlasting arms. So picture there, there is God in the midst of your trouble, in the midst of your situation. God is carrying you. God is holding you. God is uplifting you. God is supporting you. And that's what God is like. Our God with underneath the everlasting arms. Now think about this because all of us have to have a refuge. All of us have to have a place that we would run. 
Some people, they run to their success. They run, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe they run to their resources, their bank account. Maybe it's things that they, they run to. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's sex, what, whatever. But everybody has some kind of refuge that you will run to. Well, the Bible says this. It says that God is a tower of refuge for the uncertainties of life, and he never changes. So when the Bible says it's, he is a present help, what does that mean? To be present means to be near. It needs to be close to. So sometimes you think like God is out there and God is away. No, God is near. Literally, it means that he is always, everywhere, present. That's what God is like in your day of trouble. So when life gets hard, God is never absent. Trouble literally means here, because remember again that the children of Israel were surrounded. They were in the walled city of Jerusalem, and there the Assyrians ready to attack. And so when it says he is an ever-present help in times of trouble, it literally means pressed in, confined in a tight space. Pressed in and confined. So when life presses in on you, when you're facing trouble, you know that you have a God that you can run to. This is a God here who literally you can run to in tight places. When you feel like you're unable to escape, when you feel like your future is hanging in the balance, when you don't know what's going to happen, he is an ever-present help that is near in times of trouble. The fact that he is, you know, if I was like in a different church, I might say that was a good place to say amen or right on or but an ever-present help. That means that he is accessible. That means he's available. He is more present than even the trouble itself. So I think we need to be reminded of this, that God is always available to help us. And so therefore it says we shall not fear. We shall not fear whatever happens in the world. We should not fear, and literally the world is becoming unhinged here in the next couple verses, but we're going to see that because God is there, because God is present, we are not moved because we have a refuge and strength. Look at verse 2, and it's on the screen. It says this, Therefore we will not fear because of who God is, though the earth is becoming unhinged, gives way to the mountains fall into the earth of the sea. We will not fear though its waters roar, roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. Now at this time, I think you'd all agree that our world is being shaken. Our political world is being shaken. Uh, racial injustice is shaking our nation. The coronavirus, uh, the pandemic, even the local economy. Look in LA, you probably heard 700,000 jobs are gonna be lost in the restaurant business there. I mean, things are shaking, friends. So what do you do when things are shaking? You have a God that is your refuge that you can go to. It's awesome. And he's an awesome and he's an accessible God. And then it says this in verse 4. And remember that Jerusalem now is surrounded by the Assyrians. It says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. Now, what is that talking about? There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. I mean, what's that talking about? 
Well, what happened was King Hezekiah knew that the Assyrians were going to attack. And so what he did is he diverted a stream of Gihom. It was a couple thousand feet away, about, and he had rocks hewn underground so that the stream actually went in to this walled city of Jerusalem. That way they had a water supply. In that culture, in that day, in biblical times, what the enemies would do is surround the city, starve your food, and if you didn't have water, you were done quickly. Well, now they could survive the onslaught of the Assyrians. And this is a powerful reminder, I think, that the people had a source of water which would not run dry. It's a reminder, I think, to all of us who have been feeling walled up, perhaps walled up by the pandemic, walled up by your situation, maybe your finances, your marriage, your relationships, but you feel walled up some way. And I think this is a reminder to us that we have a supply that is within us in the midst of trouble. And by that, I mean, Jesus said in John chapter seven, Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come to me. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And so you have a source there in the midst of being walled up in the, in the times in which we live. And so in the middle of their situation, they had a fountain of living water, just like we have the fountain of living water in our situation, the power of God living within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when times of trouble come, what do we do? Number one, we run to our refuge. But number two here, we're going to see we be still. It says the command in the next part of the verse, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Interestingly, the Lord is speaking now as the first person. And I get it. I get it. I get it that being still is hard. I mean, like who naturally has an inclination to be still? No, you want to be active. You want to do your thing. Uh, you want to be uh, efficient. You want to be a person of achievement. You don't want to lose ground and slow down and not be able to accomplish your goals or be successful because you're being inactive and just kind of like being still. But what does it really mean? Because in our fast-paced society, things can get crazy. We live at furious paces. We're so busy. We hear lots of noise, lots of activity. Even if you're retired, you ask people when they're retired, you say, hey, how's it going being retired? And they often say, I am more busy than I, you know, I'm talking, have you ever asked somebody? I am more busy than I've ever been in my life. And it's sort of like somehow your schedule has never notified you that you are actually retired. We are into multitasking because we're so busy and we can get thing, 10 things done at the same time. And we tell people, hey, you can get a hold of me. Uh, you can reach me by phone or by fax or by Snapchat or by cell phone text or by Facebook Messenger or you can check my website. And it's like we are so busy all the time, 24-7 accessibility. So I think God speaks timelessly to us when he says be still. And friends, I want to ask you a question. Could it be that we're wasting the pandemic if all we get out of it when we get to the other side, if nothing changes with respect to this scripture? Could it be that we're not leveraging this incredible opportunity that is here, that there is something that is very positive, massively positive that could come out of the pandemic? 
something that could come out of the staying at home and being quarantined? Because the reality is this. We live in a time of enforced stillness. The very thing the scripture is talking about. And I think that one of the reasons that we've been asked to stay home for a few weeks is that perhaps so Psalm 46.10 could become a reality. Because for many of us, it'll never become a reality unless we become intentional about it. And so could this be a season of isolation that actually has a purpose? A God has a purpose for it where we are being forced to be still. Think about it, friends, because we were created our very core to be still, to have a relationship, an intimate relationship with God. And now the world is forcing us to be still. And I get it that it's not easy to be still. I get it that it's a fast-paced culture and everything is begging for your attention. Everything is screaming for your attention. But think of this. Much has been written that we are the least contemplative culture in history. We are the least contemplative culture in all of history. And now we have time to be still. And your best light is life is found on the other side of being still. And so but our natural reflexive response can be, you know, I've got things to do. I've got places to be. I can't slow down. I can't be still. God, I, I got to keep running. I got to get it done. I got to make it happen. So it kind of just goes against sometimes who we are because we think, well, to be still is to do nothing. To be still is to be idle. To be still is to be one, a person of inactivity, which couldn't be further from the truth. The truth is this, is this is an invitation to a new activity in your relationship with God. This is an invitation to a different kind of activity. So the Lord said, be still and know that I am God. Well, what does that mean to be still? It literally means to let go. It literally means to drop. It means to cease striving, to stop fighting. Think about the context. There are the children of Israel walled up in the city of Jerusalem, and there are the Assyrians. They're going to kick their butt, and they're thinking, what are, they're going to kill us. What are we going to do? And God says to them, be still and know that I am God. In other words, God is commanding them to stop fighting and open their eyes and see who God is. I wonder if that could be a word for us today, for us to be still. Because God is telling his people, wake up and see that I'm on your side. Stop stressing about the battle is what he's saying to them. And trust me, wake up because I am the Lord. I'm your refuge. I'm your strength. You have nothing to fear and you have nothing to worry because I am with you. He says to them, I will fight your battles. I will deal with those Assyrians, your enemies. Step back and acknowledge who I am and what I can do. Let me be God is what he's saying here. Don't try to do my job for me. I have the power to deal with your trouble. Let go is what he's saying here. And so let go and know. Well, know what? Know God. See, I think one of the things we got to let go of, some of us, 
to let go of control and know that God is in control. Because there's two types of people here this morning. Either you're the type of person when, when you face life is out of control, you tend to do one of two extremes. Some of you, when your life gets more out of control, you just try harder and harder to control. Come on, is that true? You just, just work harder. I'm going to control the situation. And you try to control things that only God can control. You try to control your husband. Or you try to control your wife. You try to control your kids. You try to control your future. You try to control your past. Whatever you're trying to control, we try to control harder and harder things really that only God can control. The other extreme that some of us do is the exact opposite. You throw in the towel, you call it quits, I'm done, I'm not going to try anymore. And you really have to decide who's going to be in control of your life, you or your God. So to be still then is a choice. Don't, let, don't, uh, don't tune out here because stillness is a choice. Stillness must be created. Stillness must be cultivated in your inner life. See, stillness just doesn't happen. You don't wake up one day and go, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with God. I'm going to be still. It doesn't work that way. You have to be intentional. Stillness will only exist in your life by design. Otherwise, it will not exist. So stillness is a choice. Both times in Scripture that God gave his, told his people to be still was when they were facing great trouble. When if God didn't intervene, they were done. The other time that God said, be still, was in Exodus chapter 13, verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 14. I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. And what happened was the children of Israel there had escaped Egyptian bondage. There was two million Jews. They were going to escape. They were going to go into the promised land. But what happened was the Red Sea was before them. There were mountains on the sides of them. And the Egyptian army was behind them. So what were they going to do? Either God shows up or they're done. So right then God spoke to the leader Moses and he said, be still. The very same word that is used here in Psalm 46.10, be still. In other words, let me fight the battle. Be still and see the salvation of the Lord. Those Egyptians which you see, you shall see them no more forever. In other words, I'm going to deal with your enemy if you will just be still. Oh, we know the end of the story that God did that very thing. So why do we need to be still, friends? What would, why would God make that command to be still in times of trouble? Well, to be still, you can get to know God better. Would you agree with me that when you're still, you get clarity and you know things better? When you punch out, when you pause, when you think about it, and you process it, and you have that time to be still, you just know things better. When you're still, you'll know God better. And so what the scripture is saying is that in your lifestyle, you need to create these spaces of stillness. Stillness is something that we build into our lives, something that we, we practice daily. Some people say, well, if you only knew my life, you only knew how busy I am and I've got kids. Well, but the kids also go to bed. Come on, somebody, they go to bed. They'll eventually go to bed and then you can be still. I know it's nonstop crazy activity until then, but stillness is spending time with God. It's really simple. It's reflecting on what God can do in your situation 
that you can't, you can't fix, that you can't do anything about. Being still, you have opportunities to hear God's voice, to hear the whisper of the Holy Spirit, to even, I think one of the things we often need to do is to be able to recalibrate, to hit the reset, internal reset button on your life. Maybe emotionally, maybe mentally, maybe, maybe voices that you're hearing, things that you've had said to you or things you've said to yourself. Be still so God can speak to you so that you're not a loser. You're not an idiot. That, you know, you didn't mess up as bad as you, you thought. That you can do it. That you're not too young or you're not too old or you're not a failure or it's not too hard for you. And you can be still and you can hear God's voice. So stillness then, it creates the space to silence the voices and the thoughts that can be damaging to you. Think about that. And so stillness is a place where you can, you can open your, uh, your, the scripture, you can digest the scripture, you can meditate on the scripture, you can reflect on what God has said, on God's promises. And if we practice stillness, I'm telling you, it will transform you. Your best life is on the other side of being still and knowing that he's God. That's your best life. Now, it's not going to happen all at once, but stillness will gradually transform your life little by little. And you will be a new person if you'll do this. And friends, it all starts by saying yes to be still. So here's what happens in our stillness. Here's what happens. God becomes the center of your universe. God becomes more and more real to you. you become, your, your life becomes anchored uh, in that moment there. Your feelings and your concerns are something that you can lift up to God. So this is what happens. And so it says, be still and know God. Well, what does that mean? Like, know the big guy in the sky? Like, know God theoretically? Know facts about God? What does that mean? Well, the word know in the original Hebrew language is yada. Yada is to know someone in the most intimate way possible. So when it says know God, it means to know him intimately. And that only happens in the space you create to be still where then you can yada God. And so be still uh, and get to know him. Knowing God again is something that gradually happens, happens over time. But I want to say to you that knowing God is the most valuable knowledge in the world. Knowing God is something that is will change your life. Knowing God, thanks for the hint, knowing God is something that you can do in a few different ways I want to suggest to you. The first one is this, is you know God just by learning about God. You know God by learning about God, by reading, by studying, by searching the scriptures, by learning about who he is. To know God, you do have to learn about who he is, his desires, his ways, his acts, his truth. Moses wanted to learn who God was, and Moses saw God face to face, and Moses was the intimate of God. And so it says in Psalms that the children of Israel knew the acts of God. They, they, they knew God from a distance. They heard about the Red Sea, and they heard about the plagues, they, but it was all from a distance. I wonder how many people, they know God from a distance. But then it says in Psalms, continuing, but Moses knew the ways of God. He understood how God 
operate the, the intimate side of why God did what he did. So that's what it's talking about here, that you can know God, but it begins by learning about God. The second thing, if you want to know God, is you got to listen to God. You have to listen to him, create this space where maybe, it, you know, it's, it would be whatever you want to call it. Some would call it meditation, just creating space where you can actually hear from God. You know, in conversation, when we talk, most of us, you just want to talk and get your opinions out and your thoughts. And we really aren't wired up to listen so much. And that can be true with God, too. You want to pray and get your thoughts out and really not hit the pause button and listen. But I find that some of the most important things in my life on an ongoing basis are when I pause and God speaks to me. Speaks to me about somebody that I've hurt. Speaks to me about my motives. Speaks to me about something that that was wrong that I did, but I didn't see it that way. And over the years, I can say over decades, I've heard God's voice speak to me about me. So you get to know God, you draw near to him, and he will speak to you. And so you know God by learning, you go know God by listening, you build that into your life. Sometimes God will correct you. Sometimes God will confront you. Sometimes God will encourage or inspire you. But you know God by learning about God and by listening to God. And lastly, you know God by leaning into God, leaning upon God. By that I mean you depend on him, you trust in him, you step out when he makes something real to you, and you lean into God and keep doing that as a a lifestyle. Well, I want to close with this. This whole idea, be still and know that I am God. There was a young teenager named Gordon McDonald. Uh, He became one of the great pastors in America. In one of his books, he wrote a story about when he was in high school. Uh, When he was in high school, he went to Stony Brook High School in New York. And the headmaster of the school was Frank E. Gabling, who was a great theologian and the headmaster. So what he did is he taught a course where all of the senior students had to take this course. And in that course, what they did is they memorized 300 scriptures. You can imagine how they complained about that. You can imagine when they saw, they called him the Gabe. When they saw the Gabe at school, They had to all of a sudden go to the bathroom or talk to their friend because they didn't want to encounter the gay because what he would do is he'd say, Psalm 13, 34, or Psalm 13, what did it say? Or Psalm, this Psalm, Psalm 46 is one of the ones they had to memorize. Romans 12, 1 and 2, and they had to recite it. By memory, not only that, that they had to memorize it, but they had to memorize the capitals, the commas, and the periods. 300 scriptures every student. So Gordon McDonald had to memorize these, and he, he memorized Psalm 4610. And this is how he memorized it. Big G, God is our refuge and strength, comma, a very present help in times of trouble, period. And that's how the students would say it. And so what happened was, is that one day he got a phone call because he wasn't feeling good. And I was having issues with his head. And the person on the other line said, this is Dr. B, and I have some difficult news for you. You have a tumor in your brain, in the lining of your brain, it will require surgery. 
and you're going to be out of commission for a long time. And Gordon, I know you've comforted many other people, but now you got to comfort yourself. And Gordon hit the pause button. And here in his life as a teenager, he'd be pumped full of scripture. And now, uh, and, and what happened is he was in a space where he learned to be still and know that he was God. And so when he heard the news, here's what he said. Psalm 46 is the first thing that I have turned to so I can order my private world. And he said, Big G, God is my refuge and my strength, comma. He said, I will not be afraid. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble, period. And he kept saying that to himself, and that carried him through his life. And that, friends, is what God wants to do in each of our lives, where when you are still before God and you know him, he can do this very thing in your own life. So I'm asking you, and I'm begging you, that you would do Psalm 4610, that you would leverage the opportunity of the pandemic to live out Psalm 4610 in your own life. And don't waste this opportunity. Don't end up on the other side of the pandemic having wasted the opportunity of Psalm 4610. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. Thank you, Lord, for the confidence that we have in you that you are our God, you are our fortress, you are our strong tower. You are our ever-present help in times of trouble. You are our strength. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for Psalm 46. I pray that we would um, build it into our lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.